is Our American Stories, and we love to talk about every aspect of American life. And you can't talk about America without talking about sports, which is why each week we talk to USA Today's For the Win. And joining us, Luke Caradineen from For the Win. Luke, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Hey, Luke, I'm worried about the Browns, the Cleveland Browns. And when I was a young guy, I was a Cleveland Browns fan, and I had a Leroy Kelly jersey, and I was from New Jersey, which made me really weird. What are tickets going for out in Brownsville? I mean, the Cleveland Browns are having a hard time. They're losing. This has got to be the worst place in America to be a ticket scalper. Talk about the Browns. Uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, the, I mean, the good news is, is that if you're looking to rekindle this relationship with the Browns, you can do it at a pretty good price. Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, the tickets, uh, you can't find a ticket on the street anymore for more expensive than $8. Oh, that's and rough. in a lot of... And in a lot of places, they're actually going for $1. So it's almost free at this point to go and watch the Cleveland Browns lose, which, uh, which is good or bad, depending on how you take it. That's true. And you know what I think I might do? I might go up there and buy, like, a row of seats, sit in the middle in my own personal Cleveland Browns row, sounding like I could probably do that for about 40 bucks. <laughs> 40 bucks, yeah. You could probably do it for about 15 at this rate. <laughs> uh, let's switch gears. Let's switch to uh, Steph Curry. And uh, we like to just hit some of the, the, the topics on for the win. And by the way, that's ftw.usatoday.com, ftw.usatoday.com. He's also been graced on the cover of the Wall Street Journal's magazine section as well, and I thought they did a terrific job there. But you had a moving story off the court with Steph Curry. Talk about that. Yeah, you know, it's a really, uh, it's, it's a, it's a really heartfelt story, as you said, Steph Curry playing or fulfilling uh, one child's dream and playing one-on-one basketball um, with him and uh, with an ill with an ill child and you know it's it's one of these growing trends that you see in the NBA nowadays a lot of players are starting to realize that they're bigger than just professional athletes and just cashing paychecks they they actually want to do some good with their money and with their sort of notoriety and Steph Curry has been one of the leaders in that respect and I think this week, you really saw that come to the fore. You know, I, it's interesting to me. So many of these athletes, and I, I can't say all because there are many that aren't, but so many that are, uh, the Wall Street Journal got at his faith and his Christian faith and the role it played. And he's not out there with it all the time. But my goodness, every time he does what he does on the court, he always points upward after a, after a great shot. Even more, you can see the joy he has in giving a great assist and always that pointward upwards. Talk about these athletes, especially some of the Christian ones who are, because some of these guys are leading the charge in terms of being great role models. Oh, absolutely. You know, and it's one of these things where, of course, like, you know, America being the great country that is, nobody, uh, no, nobody's going to distinguish what you believe um, in any way, shape, or form. But what you're seeing with a lot of these athletes is that they're channeling what they believe into some really. Uh, heartfelt and powerful and productive ways, and they're using their faith as a kind of motivation to give back. Steph Curry, as you said, you know, this isn't just something that he um, that he celebrates just within himself. It's something that he tries to bring back to the community. Tim Tebow, obviously, is has been hugely uh, notable for this. Um, the college football, former college football quarterback, Tim Tebow, and just seeing it, just. It's a, it's a real motive, source of motivation for all of these athletes um, to give back. Indeed. And, uh, and, and something a little bit different now, going from the, from the sublime to the, well, almost ridiculous. Let's talk about one story I saw. I mean, I just saw the picture, Luke, and I just said, only in America. 
Goat yoga. What is goat yoga? <laughs> goat yoga is a, a potential new craze in the yoga world, apparently, where just people, it involves uh, exactly what it sounds like. People doing yoga with baby goats standing in and around and on them. Um, I'm not quite sure the appeal, um, but apparently, apparently it's growing in popularity steadily so. So um, more power to them, I guess. You know, Luke, every once in a while, what I would do when I was, when I was in better shape and my, my little girl weighed about 10 pounds or 40 pounds, I'd have her climb on my back and I'd do push-ups. And I'm thinking, is there such a thing as a goat push-up? Is that, is that what's going on? Because I saw one picture, Luke, where the goat was sitting on the lady's back while she was doing some kind of really, really difficult yoga pose. Yeah, you were, you were ahead of your time because I think that's exactly part of what goes on. Um, it, it's just sort of a, it, it's a, it's a more fun and more cuddly way, apparently, of, of improving your strength and flexibility. You know, there's not just goat yoga, Luke. There's, uh, there's horse yoga. Talk about horse yoga. So horse yoga involves actually being on the horse as you are executing these yoga exercises, um, much the same way, but obviously you can't have a horse sort of stand on you as you would a goat, for example. So a different variation of the same thing. That would be rough, wouldn't it? That would be really rough. You know, by the way, Luke, I don't know where you stand, but maybe you can carry up this bet. When, when, uh, when your, your colleague, uh, Nate, and I talked about the Golden State Warriors this year, I predicted that Kevin Durant would not be an addition. It would actually be a subtraction. That the great chemistry that this team once had would be lost and that they wouldn't make it to the finals this year and that they would have at least, at least 10 more losses and Nate and I had a bet. I'm not sure if you want to carry the other side of that bet or not, Luke, but, uh, but I'm game if you care to. And all it was, was was a steak, dinner, that's it. I mean, nothing, nothing big. <laughs> Though it can't be like, it, it, has to be, it has to be Smith Walensky or it has to be Roots Chris. It's got to be an actual steak dinner. You know, I'll ride with my buddy Nate on this one. It, it's an intriguing prospect. I'm looking forward to you buying me that steak dinner. <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to it, too. And there's one last thing. You know, I'm, everybody's talking about Dak Prescott. And, you know, when you look back, Tom Brady wasn't a high pick, and now Dak Prescott wasn't exactly a first-round pick. What are the scouts missing? That they've missed perhaps two? Well, we don't know. We'll see how Dak ends up, what kind of a ball player he ends up being long-term. But we know about Tom Brady, and he wasn't a first-round pick. And these could end up being two of the great quarterbacks of all time. What were the scouts missing? And why, do they, why will they always perhaps continue to miss? You know, I think NFL scouts fall into the same trap of looking for prototypical uh, players. They look for guys who are the right size, who have the right sort of measurables. Um, they can run a certain speed. I mean, Brady fell to the sixth round in the NFL draft in 2001, I believe it was, or 2000. And um, it's simply because he couldn't run very fast. And when yeah. Tom Brady was asked about it, now he just says, look, that's not my skill set. That's um, not what I do. That's not what I do. Well, Luke, this is good. I've got the other side of that bet cut and done. This is Lee Habib, Luke Caradineen, USA Today's For the Win. That's ftw.usatoday.com. Luke, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much. You bet. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. More after these messages.
This is Our American Stories, and that music cues us for one of our favorite regular features, and that's The Burning Question with Heidi Mitchell, and she writes that column weekly for the Wall Street Journal, and for all of you who think you're going to go to the journal and just get highfalutin finance, our favorite part of the journal is the personal journal, and one of our favorite people who writes regularly for the personal journal is Heidi Mitchell, and her latest question How often should I replace my coffee mug in the office? And Heidi, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Well, you know, Heidi. I need a cup of coffee right now. I I need two. And I I drink soda. So (laughs) I don't drink coffee. I get my caffeine from Coca Cola. But you could say the same about my Coke mug. So we'll we'll have to. I know it's gross. But let's talk about (laughs) how did. Why this one, Heidi? Is there someone in your office who has what we call the really gross coffee mug? It's more that the devotion to the coffee mug that people who have worked in the same office at the journal or wherever for forever, they haven't never replaced them. So you'll go to the, you know, the kitchen and wash your mug out or whatever, make microwave your lunch. And in the cabinet are these sort of verboten mugs that have been there for 15, 20 years. <laughs> you're not allowed to use them. Yeah, you're so not the question to... was like, whose are these and why are they so attached to these? And is it unsafe to have the same disgusting brown mug? sitting in there for years yeah and by the way it's not only that you can't use them some people won't even let you look at them or touch them it's so personal (laughs) no don't look at my mug do not look at my mug (laughs) i mean you get attached to these things they're hard to find the perfect mug i i I understand that so so tell me this first heidi do you use the same coffee mug from your early writing days i'm the worst because i i get my coffee from the guy at the cart and I don't spend more than a dollar on my coffee. I probably spend less than any average American on coffee, on any coffee-drinking American, because I just get it from the cup, from the cup, from the guy in the street. I don't have a mug. Oh, my goodness. I don't have a mug. Oh, my goodness. Well, this, this, gives, get a mug. this allows you to be dispassionate about this. And, and what's <laughs> the worry here, Heidi? You, you, you have a mug, or your mug's near one of these other mugs? Because that's what I always worry about. It's like too much contact to that, that diseased or old mug. Do I have anything to worry about? Does anybody have anybody to worry? Anybody have anything to worry about, Heidi? You know, there are few um, germs that can last more than an hour on an inert object like a like a mug. So you really don't have anything to worry about. I mean, they're, they're, it's not like the germs are going to jump from one mug to the next. I guess that they're touching, maybe, but you need a critical mass to get you sick. So you really don't, there's never been a case as far as the NIH or, or any major uh, institutions have known about that people were, there was a, a mass breakout of infection due to coffee mugs. So your mug sitting next to another mug. It's cool. It's, your mug's fine. Your so mug, so you what about that? Fine. You know, we have a friend in the studio who, when we described the, uh, the office coffee mug, talked about his dad's and how his dad would just never, ever replace it. And, you know, it would start to get them nervous. Talk about that. Also, talk about Navy sailors who take really great pride in what I call or what you call seasoning the mug, seasoning the mug. I like that. I love this. Um, so, so I was talking to, uh, you know, this Dr. Stark, who, um, you know, he was the director of infection control at a hospital in Texas for 22 years. And, and you're talking about Dr. Jeffrey Stark, a professor of pediatrics at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. And what I love here, Heidi, is that in the end, you always call some expert who has an expertise in almost everything in every walk of American life. I just love that yeah. part of your column. Who knew? 
Oh, no. These people existed. Yep. Right. Well, he, he couldn't find any studies that were specifically on coffee mugs and germs that lurk inside of them. But he did have this great anecdote about um, how, like you said, that in the Navy, they take this great pride. There's a thing called, um, uh, what do they call it? They call it uh, seasoning their mugs. So, um, so he said there, there was some... If you Google it, you can see on these like Navy blogs that um, the first thing your sergeant will tell you is don't wash your mug. And that supposedly the Navy coffee is just toxic. And so the, the longer you let it, it your, your coffee mug turn brown over months and years, the better that your coffee will taste. There's not data to back this up, but there's a lot of anecdotal evidence. So seasoning your mug, letting it turn. You know how it turns brown on the inside yep. from the black coffee? So, uh, so yeah, so it, there's no data that says that this unwashed mug or this blackness that sits inside of the, of the mug, un, empty, unwashed mug, is bad for you. doesn't harbor germs, doesn't harbor infectious disease, hasn't resulted in any outbreaks. So, um, so you, you know, you don't really need to even wash out your mug. You can just rinse out your mug. Kind of gross. It is kind of but, gross. It is kind of, but here's where it gets grosser. Dr. Stark, this is, I'm going to quote from your article, Heidi, and I know writers generally don't like having their own work quoted back at them. But here's Dr. Stark's quote, which you include in the piece. Now, if you leave cream or sugar in your mug over the weekend, now that can certainly cause mold to grow. And if your mug had obvious signs of mold, you might not want to drink from it. Talk about that, Heidi. I think that's fairly obvious. But haven't you done that where you like... I mean, my dad's a big, oh, he does this all the time where he buys a coffee in the morning, then he leaves it in the car all day, and then the next morning he's like, meh, and I'll just drink his coffee from the car. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, you can see there's like kind of oil spills on top and all this stuff, the lint in the air that's fallen onto it. It's just disgusting. I don't know why. <laughs> I guess the first thing you do when you get to your office is just like pour out whatever's in there, rinse it out, and then you can start your Keurig or whatever they have at your office. Um, and fill your mug. But, um, you know, if it has obvious signs of like, you know, that, that it will cause almost like a crust of that white creamer is just the worst, but milk will curdle too. It's just gross. You can totally tell. Yeah. But, you know, if you rinse it out, it doesn't like the, the, I asked about the ceramic and the glaze and that stuff won't, it won't hold in that bacteria or viruses or anything like that. They, they can't live for more than like a year, so a, an hour. So like even overnight, if you had rinsed out your mug and left it sitting there and there's like little bits of coffee in there, it's not going to leave um, any like whatever legionnaires or whatever in there. Well, that's good to know, Heidi. By the way, I have a rule in my family, and that is that dad is not allowed to take takeout food ever again from anywhere because I will take it, stick it underneath the seat, and then I'll leave it <gasps> underneath the seat for anywhere from two days to two months until one day we all discover that dad's oh. done it again, and there's all kinds of things growing oh in the car. Gosh. Yeah, it's terrible. I do want to know that how long can food last? Because we have a debate in my house about leftovers. Nobody eats the leftovers. And then four days later, I'm like, I feel like it has to go in the garbage. My mother, I'm living with her in the summer, she's like, oh, no, it's good for a week. I really don't think cooked food <laughs> in the fridge is good for a week. No, I don't Coffee think so Coffee from either. yesterday is also not good. <laughs> no, it's not. So knowing all we know... Uh, how should we wash our mugs, and how often should we wash them? Okay, so this is an interesting one. You should wash your mug with, like, a little dab of soap and some warm water. He says, like, a lot of people said well, there were some, a lot of things online, but you could take the super hot water that comes out of the spigot sometimes or on one of those, on, like, 
mulligan ones and um, colligan ones and, and fill your uh, mug with some hot water and then just swish it around and pour it out. But what you don't want to do is use the sponge because of all the nasty things in your office besides, you know, that coworker that you don't like, that sponge is the grossest thing in the office. Um, it ha- has everyone's germs on it from all the food that they clean, that they clean, the, you know, the place they clean the food off with and their dirty hands and whether or not they used the bathroom and didn't wash their hands and then pick up the sponge. And so the sponge is really disgusting. So don't use that on your, um, on your mug when you're cleaning it. But, you know, if you accidentally use that verboten mug that's sitting in the, in the cabinet and maybe that person's out sick and you've always wanted to try the I Love Mom mug that's sitting in there, um, what's great is that you don't have to worry about getting sick from it because, as Dr. Stark said, um, normal ger- people's normal germs really won't make you sick. He said if they did, then we would have to ban kissing. Well, that's a that's a fair point, though. There are some people I don't know if I want to kiss them because their mouths are receptacles of diseases, too. That's true, too. Oh, well, Heidi, what are you doing? Anything special for your Christmas season? I'm going to my motherland, my homeland of New York City. Well, so good. I'll be there for a few weeks, a few days, just, you know, pretending like I still live there. Good for you. If you have a chance, if you have a chance and you're in Brooklyn, ask a uh-huh. cab driver to take you to Spumoni Gardens. And if you haven't ever been there in your life, You'll thank me after you have their pizza. It's truly Spumoni the most... Gardens. Spumoni Gardens. Pizza Dan, Brooklyn. I'm Googling it as you speak. Avenue U. It's a legend. It's been, on every, it's been featured on almost every cooking network, but my friends in Brooklyn don't know about it. Every time I go back to even Manhattan, I demand to go out to Spumoni Gardens. I'm promising you, you won't regret it. Heidi, as right. always, we love having you on. Uh, have a happy holidays, and we'll look forward to talking to you on the other side. Thank you. Take care. You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, The Burning Question with Heidi Mitchell. And she, of course, writes that for the personal journal, a part of the Wall Street Journal. Go to WSJ.com to get America's paper. It's simply the best paper in the world. And again, this is Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and today we have one of our favorite regular features with marriage coach Deb Wolniak. And this week, she brings us the story of Ron and Kathy, who've been married for 30 years. And Ron was wrongfully imprisoned for 15 of them. This is our Marriage on the Mind segment. Deb takes us back to the beginning of Ron and Kathy's story. How did you guys meet? Um, Kathy and I, I'll I'll start there, honey. I was five years old, and and Kathy fell in love with me That's not at true. the age of four. <laughs> <laughs> we did meet. We were neighbors, so we did meet when we were four and five, but I certainly did not fall in love with him and certainly did not like him. Um, so we, we had met as neighbors and then through school uh, knew each other, and then it really wasn't until after high school we, we began dating. So 
my role, I was actually in my own mind, I was a rock star, and 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 Kathy was one of my groupies. No, I was not. <laughs> <laughs> that is so cute. Well, with with some of life's events, um, were you then married right away, or how did you handle your dating relationship and transition into marriage? Oh yeah, that's a that's a loaded question. At that point in our lives, we just really were at a place of you know. Um, believing the lie that you can, you know, have fun, do whatever you want to do, and then at some point in the future you can make a decision to be responsible. Be and, grown up. And, yeah, and be grown ups, and that, you know, whatever happened before that doesn't count or, you know, isn't going to affect that. So when we first got together, uh, we were living together, and then I got pregnant, and then we got married, um, and then we had our first son, and then uh, a year and a half later we had our second son. So in the midst of all of that, uh, we had a, a lot of crazy stuff happening, a lot of parties um, going on, lots of drinking. Just, and a really, just really living a, a, a life of, with no understanding of what it means to. And when there's a thing that uh, I'd say, you know, I was a grown man. You know, I was my age-wise that made me a grown man, but I was a grown man with little boy issues. Mm-hmm. And trying, instead of a building a house, we were playing house. This hard-partying couple soon discovered that life... It's not all fun and games. When we were married just for five years, Ron ended up going to prison for a crime he did not commit. And we had two little boys, and it just it really started our journey into really understanding that there are children and families that are almost invisible in society and that much of society really deems and sees as disposable. And so that really ignited a passion in us to really, first of all, want to rescue our own family and then want to rescue um, every family coming behind us. Kathy, you you walked out of court as a single mom as your husband went into prison. What were you thinking? Oh, my goodness. I was completely stunned because it was not at all what I expected. I had expected to be going home with Ron and and actually, you know, suing people for, for putting us in this situation. And, and you know, just I, it was completely the opposite of what I had anticipated. And uh, the, the real devastation of having to go home and explain to my two little boys why Daddy wasn't coming home that day and why I didn't know when Daddy might be coming home. Finding myself standing there all by myself, everybody else has gone home, and I'm standing at the window, looking out the window, watching Ron be put in the sheriff's car and mm. thinking, oh, my gosh, now what? and just mm. not having any answers in that moment. You know, though I was innocent when I was convicted of, I found myself in a place where I couldn't be taken at my word, I, mm. and, but finding myself in the penitentiary and really, and the, the truth is, day one of, of incarceration, I turned my life over to Christ and, and never looking back and really understanding the reality that I had created for my family because of the choices and poor choices that I was making led up to where uh, I couldn't be taken at my word, where... Um, I had to either wake up or, or or lose everything. When I went to go see him and he had told me, you know, that he was feeling freer than he ever had, and here he is in jail. It was our first visit. And I was like, oh, man, my husband's had a nervous breakdown. And uh, just really, <laughs> really thinking, I asked him, I said, so is there a resident psychiatrist here? Because, my dear, you are not free. You are behind bars. And he says, no, no, you don't understand the freedom that I have in... Um, in where I am and accepting God. Even though Ron was the one behind bars, Kathy felt just as isolated. She was ostracized by friends and felt cast away. 
but they couldn't spend too much time feeling sorry for themselves. They had to move forward. When you have a marriage that goes through 15 years of incarceration, you had some sort of serious commitment because I think a lot of people would say, that's it, I'm done, goodbye, and (laughs) find a new life. Can you point to something directly that prevented you from doing that? Yeah, I, Ron, if I, can, if I can go first. For me, it was, you know, a commitment is a commitment. And, and having Ron in prison was not, um, it was not an easy journey, but it was, um, it was still a beautiful journey because what happened was we really learned what commitment meant. We meant uh, what we said when we said for better or for worse. And we didn't put our relationship up on a shelf and say, okay, well, when you get home, we're going to work on our relationship. And that might be, you know, 10, 15, 20, 25 years. Instead, we were very determined and very deliberate in investing in our relationship and ensuring that we maintained that relationship even through long distance. And that meant, you know, staying connected to what was happening in each other's lives and encouraging each other in whatever way we could. Um, finding ways to be intimate that were not um, sexual because we couldn't have sex. So it was uh, finding ways to connect on a, on a, on a mental, emotional um, friendship level mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. really took us through um, those 15 years and caused us to come out stronger. On my end, I, I'll say this, because every man's fear, when they go into a penitentiary and they have a, a wife, or a, a loved one, a significant other on the outside waiting for them. One of the greatest fears is to get that Dear John letter and to, mm-hmm. and to lose that connection. And so one of the things uh, that I did at the beginning of, of my career, you, know, you know, I'm plea bargaining with Kathy, you know, you know, baby, you, know, you marry me for better or for worse, it can't get worse than this. You know, and I'm trying to, you know, still trying to connect that, keep that going still, so I didn't lose it, even, uh, even as far as telling her, you know, God hates divorce, so you can't divorce me. But but it but it wasn't it wasn't what what was feeling the uh, it wasn't closing the deal with Kathy and because I know because I know Kathy had mind battles there's fourteen or twenty five years I have no idea what that looks like she doesn't Kathy's a beautiful twenty five year old young lady she's got two boys we have two sons and, and and we're just like okay so and then and then really one day for me you know I'm like you know what I don't know when I'm going home and and man I remember in a prison visiting room and I was. And I had to find the courage to really step up and tell Kathy, I release you. I release you from this. I really recognized that, that there was a change. There was a kind of a wake-up in Ron's life that he was um, very committed to helping our relationship and, and to not just to helping our relationship but to wanting the absolute best for me. Mm-hmm. And even if that meant that the absolute best for me was to move on uh, without him. And that, I mean, it was really shocking because it, it was so sincere. I mean, he wasn't playing and trying to, well, let me say this and hopefully that will make her stay. It was uh, uh, very sincere. And it really, my same thing, you know, Ron, uh, we're in this together. And we're going to do battle together for our family. And we are going to save our marriage. And we are going to save our children. Um, so that our children could be raised in an intact family. And we're not going to become a statistic. And, and I need you all in. Because if you've got one foot thinking that it's better to dissolve our marriage and one foot in, we're not going to make it. And um, I think really at that moment we both decided, okay, 
uh, we're locking arms emotionally, mentally, spiritually, and we're going into battle, and we're going to come out on the other side, whatever it takes, together. And wow, what a story. And they made me laugh. I mean, they were making all of us laugh here in the studio and smile, and that good <laughs> smile. And it just shows you what you can endure and the power of faith. And I love the line, a commitment is a commitment. And I keep thinking about that great line uh, that, that uh, Bonhoeffer had about marriage. And he had said that in the end, uh, love doesn't save marriage. Marriage saves love. And he's so right. And when we come back, our Marriage on the Mind segment and coach and founder and creator and all-around marriage guru, uh, Deb Wolniak will join us to talk more about Ron and Kathy here on Our American Stories. our American story and my goodness I think the crew here I think we all agree this may have been our favorite and this is not to say there haven't been some other really great and really sad marriage on the mind segments but this one has the tragedy and it has this amazing ending and well we're all suckers for a good ending and wow listening to the couple just make fun of themselves and tease each other Ron and Kathy Deb Wolniak joins us now, and she's our just around all around marriage goddess. And we don't call many people goddesses here, um, but Deb, thanks, thanks for bringing them to us, and thanks for doing what you do. You know what? What struck you first about this this change? I think in Ron, because I think if Ron hadn't gone from the place of using religion to force his wife into guiltily staying. God commands that you stay with me. To I release you from this. Yeah. One a very insincere plea, the other a deeply sincere plea. Um, that had to be a lot of emotional work for Ron. Oh my goodness! Yes, I mean here's a gentleman that um, was wrongly accused of a crime, um, and he'll fully take ownership of it. If you read his. Um, whole story on thebridgeproject.com, you will see um, exactly what he went through with um, his situation. But he lost everything. He lost his reputation. He lost his, his income. He is now incarcerated and is now around a group of men that society ends up labeling and sometimes throwing out. What else do you have except those four walls and, you know, no privacy. Um, you're looking at 15 years of what? And a lot of people would n- have so many adjustments in that phase. They would not necessarily have the, the situation, we pray that they would, of something to hang on to, a piece of hope. That's one thing that prisoners really look for is, is hope. And he had been wrestling with some things for a while that he was really, really awoke in a spiritual sense when he got in there. And when you go through something like that and you are in a sacrificial mode and you want the best for your family, even though you're inside those walls, it really gets you to a point where you're doing a gut check. And here's a guy who said, you know what, I love my wife enough that if she needs to do something for her life, I release her. That is the most unselfish thing I have ever heard. 
and the whole story is just blowing my mind, and you need to know what happens next. You know, it's unreal. You know, go. let's go backwards again before we go forwards. Uh, when, when Ron was talking about his early years of his marriage, he confessed to being a narcissist. Mm. Uh, what did he mean by that, Deb? So sometimes our culture kind of pursues this with us. Um, you know, what is best for me? What is, you know, what are some of the things that I want to attain in life? And some of those things are image things or, or self-indulgent things. Um, how do we make our decisions day to day? Are they for the benefit of self? Or are they the benefit of those around me? And Ron and Kathy fully admit that when they were young marrieds, they were out there doing their thing, having fun, you know, taking in life to the fullest, which, you know, that's not bad in itself. But when it's so self-focused, it can be destructive, even as a couple. So this particular life moment for them was a huge game changer. It took away any of the bragging rights. It took away opportunities. It took away so many different things that they really had to come down to the core of what is the most valuable and important thing that I stand for in my life? How can I help others in this case? These guys said, you know what, there's something bigger than us in this world, and we definitely need to pursue it because right now we're at our last ropes and and we don't know what to do. Now, this couple was separated for a long time, and Many couples get separated for all kinds of reasons, sometimes emotional. Sometimes it's just the physical location of a job. Uh, and sometimes it's something like prison. And my goodness, how many men and women are locked up in this country for long periods of time? And plus just yeah. separations in marriages where people just decide, hey, let's get away from each other. But they don't get divorced. And I've had several friends who've gone through that state. And what to do and how to repair when separated. How do you repair mm-hmm. something when you're separated. Let's talk about that. Yeah. So one of the things I love about Ron and Kathy is they not only made um, some healthy decisions for themselves individually in this case, they took on um, a new level of spirituality and practice, but the goals, the outcomes of the fruits of that decision are amazing because they put the other person first and they continue to work on the areas that they could work on. And that was encouragement communication, and some of the ways that um, couples that, you know, aren't physically together can still support each other um, no matter what. Now, Kathy was carrying most of the burden of the household. This included getting an additional job. It included watching the two boys and raising the two boys. How huge is that when a father figure is missing for 15 years of their lives? But Ron and Kathy made that commitment to continue to affirm those family relationships, and keep that communication going and stay together as a core unit, even though the outside was pushing in on them as far as labels and pressure and, let's face it, financial pressure. There's a lot of things going on there that could easily have shattered this marriage. But they continued at the core pieces, so much so that they developed that program called the Ridge Project out of Ohio and has had huge success in teaching other families, couples, inmates, how to become uh, stronger people individually as well as couples in keeping families together. Deb, we couldn't play it in the clip, but Ron actually interrupted Kathy at one point to say that she was understating what an amazing woman she became under the most difficult of circumstances. Uh, can you talk about this mutual admiration society, the way these, these two people, this couple, 
uh, just admired and appreciated each other. Right, right. You can tell they have a, a deep love for each other because there's not only mutual respect that's there, but really admonishing and encouraging the other person, speaking well of that other person. Um, you can tell that Ron is absolutely in love with Kathy, and Kathy's absolutely in love with Ron. And Ron knows what Kathy did in, in his absence. And I'm going to tell you what, a woman of true character, of true strength, is, is amazing in this story because she decided, and she didn't have to, she decided to stay. She decided to work on their relationship, and both of them continued on together. This is a woman that um, doesn't get afraid of very much. <laughs> I know her personally. She is a very strong woman, but she's also strong in her conviction, character, and purpose. And as a couple, they have those common goals together, which is one of the reasons um, why their success is because their convictions and their life's calling are matching up. And isn't it interesting? It happened through an event that was a tragedy to really push them to the point where they have such a deep relationship together. And that's the thing. Not all tragedies end in this positive mode because no. life circumstance happens. Yeah, a loss of um, a child, um, a loss of a family member, separation. We've talked about that. Those are all stressors that can happen. But when you look at the population of prisoners today, one in every 110 people in the United States are incarcerated. That's a lot of people. That's 2.2 million people. And these are families that are affected every day. The children that go to school that have a mother or father in prison really, really um, have an interesting challenge because if word gets out, it can cause stigma and things like that. Yep. What, what we're hoping is that this story will encourage people to seek out and respect the space of what people are going through in their trauma. It may not be a prison situation. It may be something else. We need to support families and couples so they stay together to build the family. And now look at what they did. They have very strong men that have grown up now. Those boys are young men, and they are going to be having solid family relationships because these guys stuck it out and now have been living examples for thousands of people across the country in how to get through some of the toughest things that your life may throw at you. No doubt. I mean, the kids are going to grow up and, and hit roadblocks and they're going to go, look what mom and dad did. Look what mom right. and dad did. And we live through example in the end always, Deb. It's always our examples that teach and not our teaching. And, you know, I, I just seen Shawshank Redemption recently. If you remember, there's this scene where Timmy Robbins, everybody says they're innocent. And they actually committed crimes. Timmy Robinson, Robbins actually didn't commit the crime. But in the end, as he was reflecting in the scene, he said, you know, I didn't actually pull the trigger, but I was a neglectful husband. And so my wife, well, she stepped out on me. And then there was an accident. But if I hadn't done what, if I had been a good husband, it wouldn't have happened. I, I belong here. And it sounds to me like in some respects, Ron was owning his own responsibility for his incarceration, even as mm -hmm. someone who did not commit the crime. If he had been living a different life, that wouldn't have happened. It wouldn't have okay. happened. And I think that's, that's so often the case. You know, when you start to own your life, you have a chance of living your life. Right. Um, but you can't if you don't. And, and thanks for bringing us this story, uh, Deb. And we, this one, uh, I think we're going to just run again. And I, we, I just may go in to meet Ron and Kathy and spend an extra hour or even two hours on them because I think that their story, I think it deserves a book contract. Uh, it's oh, it's easily. remarkable. 
Easily. It's something that so many people can learn from, and they're great examples. And it's a great reminder that your best life is the one you're in right now. Yep. Now, what are you going to do to make it better? You bet. Well, Deb, thanks so much, as always. Our Marriage on the Mind segment, the story of Ron and Kathy, the story of love and redemption. Uh, no better story we've told yet on marriage. And as always, Deb Walniak, our marriage coach and all-around guru. Thanks so much for what you do, Deb. Oh, you're welcome. Take care. This is Our American Stories. More after these messages. Our American Stories, and we got a great crew here, and we try to feature their work as often as we can. And one of our favorite segments is Jesse's World, and it's that time. In order to protect African cows from ravenous lions, Australian researchers have begun painting eyes on the rear end of cows. Lions are ambush predators, and they rely on stealth and the element of surprise in order to bring down their prey. As soon as they lose that element of surprise, as soon as the prey sees them, they abandon their hunt. That's why Dr. Neil Jordan and his fellow researchers are going to Botswana to paint eyes on cows' rumps. They hope it'll prove a low-cost way to protect livestock from lions and lions from being killed by farmers in retaliation. Dr. Jordan trialed his idea, which he calls iCow, last year with promising results. The researchers stamped painted eyes under the butts of one-third of a herd of 62 cattle, making sure their eyes were large, easily visible, and potentially intimidating. While three unpainted cows were killed by lions... All the painted cows survived to graze another day. If successful, iCow would be an affordable tool for farmers. Losing one cow costs five times as much as painting a herd of 60 cattle. Livestock auctioneers spit some dope rhymes in glorious rap mashups. Watch out, Jay-Z. These livestock auctioneers are coming for your hip-hop crown. Vine user Auctioneer Beats, also known as Graham Haven Rich from Chicago, has mashed up a bunch of the animal sellers' tight rhymes over some rap beats. The auctioneer's natural cadence and flow, which according to Modern Farmer magazine, they pick up at a special training school, Fused perfectly with the music. If animals were meant to cover rock and roll hits, they probably would have been born with better singing voices. But thankfully for us, that doesn't stop Insane Cherry. The YouTube channel returns with another creature-dubbed masterpiece, Joan Osborne's One of Us. (laughs) 
splicing in barks, meows, hee-haws, and other beastly sounds from internet videos, Insane Cherry has also rendered Queen's We Will Rock You and Linkin Park's Numb. Watching the animals in Insane Cherry's latest ask, what if God was one of us, takes rock and roll theology to a whole new level. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. <laughs> Thank you for that, Jesse. And by the way, who gets the job of painting the cow butt? That's what I want to know. And do they kick cows like horses? I mean, because you're not supposed to get behind a horse. I don't know. I don't know either. <laughs> well, that brings us to another segment. And by the way, I love Joan Osborne, and now I can never think of her the same way again. <laughs> Jesse, I can never think of that song. By the way, written by Eric Bazalian of the Hooters. Uh, that song. I don't know if you know that. Huh, now I do. Well, now you do. There you go. And now we want to talk about one of our favorite beats, because our friends over at NPR do some really decent and actually sometimes admirable storytelling, but they also do it in a way that you'll truly find, well, well, you'll find it only on NPR the way they do it, which we love to bring you in our regular series called Only on NPR. For today's report, our field correspondent Alex Cortez brings you their coverage on the topic of the minimum wage which they dedicated a week of coverage to. Here's Alex. Good day to you, and welcome to All Things Considered, a show where we talk very softly and right into the mic. Do you hear that? I'm whispering right in your ear. I'm right in your ear. Buzz, 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 buzz. That was Family Guy's take on NPR. And here's the real deal. Their host, Jeremy Hobson. All this week, we're looking at the issue of the minimum wage and whether it should be raised from the current $7.25 an hour at the federal level. But is NPR really posing a question as professional journalists? Or are they just pretending to and really giving us all answers as activists? Let's take a listen. Each day this week, as part of our series, we're going to hear from a different worker making at or near minimum wage. NPR started off by speaking with Bridget Hughes, who works at Wendy's. She began there at 16 years old, making $7.25 an hour, and now at 25, makes $8.75. Is there any hope for you to get a raise uh, just within the company without the government coming in and saying we're raising the minimum wage? Bridget says there are promotion opportunities, but... You know, for whatever reason, haven't gotten there yet. She says for whatever reason, as if it's unknown. But in the same interview, she details the reasons. I have been considered for promotions before, but have been uh, told uh, I was too emotional. I've been told that somebody was more qualified, you know, various reasons. NPR failed to follow up on this inconsistency. And worse, they failed to celebrate. The good news that Bridget herself recognizes there is a path for her to greater opportunity and to higher pay. I am working towards getting promoted within the company. In all of NPR's storytelling during Minimum Wage Week, not once did they tell the story of someone who started at the minimum wage and climbed up that ladder of opportunity. Not once. They just couldn't bring themselves to do it. But here at Our American Stories, we don't have such bashfulness. You're bashful. Oh. Here's one of our stories last year with an Indian immigrant named Daljeet Hundal, who at 19 years old started working at Carl's Jr. 
took that job. I worked part-time as a cook, making minimum wage at night just to pay my bills. The minimum wage was around $2 an hour back then. And as I was going through school, uh, trying to work full-time and that, the opportunity came up with Carl's to get into their training program and, uh, and, and, and become a manager eventually. So um, I did that. I was a shift manager, then an assistant manager, and then uh, I became a general manager of a restaurant uh, in 1978. And then about two and a half years after that, I was a district manager. And a couple years after that, I was promoted to a regional director of operations. Daljeet now owns 16 Carl's Jr. franchises and 14 Jama Juices, the same guy who started at $2 an hour. And when we come back after these messages, more on our Only at NPR Minimum Wage series, The Story They Didn't Tell. This is Our American Stories, and we continue... With our field correspondent Alex Cortez's experience spending some time, actually, with NPR and their minimum wage coverage. They spent a week on this, and let's pick up where we left off. Daljeet now owns 16 Carl's Jr. franchises and 14 Jama Juices, the same guy who started at $2 an hour. And this isn't some cherry-picked, isolated story. Here's yet another about a minimum wage worker that we told that NPR wouldn't. Uh, you know, I came in this country in 1990 from Bangladesh. Uh, you know, it's, uh, Bangladesh is a very poor country, and I came in this country, first of all, I was in culture shock. I had no clue what was going on here. Uh, and second of all, the problem was I didn't speak any English. So, you know, I started looking at a job. Nobody would hire me. You know, that was, was a very, very bad situation in my life. Uh, so, you know, all of a sudden I walked into a White Castle restaurant in Elmhurst, Queens, New York. And I had this conversation with this gentleman named Eugene Miller. And I, talk, you know, I, I sort of communicated my, uh, uh, my situation with him with broken language. One word here, one word there. And luckily my sister-in-law was here with me. And she was able to help me express myself what my situation is. And Mr. Miller was very kind. He actually offered me a job on the spot. He said, hey, listen, you can come and join our team. You really don't need English to cook hamburgers. That's what my sister-in-law told me in my own language. Uh, You are more than welcome to join. And I was able to join that location. If White Castle was not there, I probably wouldn't be here today. Like Daljeet Hundal, Jahangir Kabir worked his way up. I had a desire to learn and learn English. So once I learned really English good, uh, I was able to move up within the company. I became an instructor, I became a crew manager, I became a general manager. Right now I'm a district manager running eight locations in New York City. Step by step, adding those qualifications that the Wendy's employee NPR interviewed said her bosses were looking for. But that NPR made sound like an impossible dream. Like the government is her only savior. Next, NPR spoke with Jane McGinn, owner of Sweet Jane's Ice Cream Shop in Astoria, Queens, in New York City, and asked her this question. And they're making what at this point, in terms of money? How much money do they make? For NPR, it's all about the money they make. 
and not at all about the experience, the relationships, and the wisdom they get too, which NPR didn't ask about a single time. And all of which can become more valuable than money itself, as you'll often hear about on the hit show Shark Tank. You have the business experience and the knowledge that I lack. Many entrepreneurs actually want the experience, the relationships, and the wisdom of the sharks more than they even want the money. Not NPR. How much money do they make? In Cash. Jane had constructed this beautiful ladder of opportunity that was available to all of her employees. And yet NPR failed to mention how a $15 minimum wage would deconstruct this very ladder. Suddenly, the higher qualified person who is making $13 an hour is making the same amount as the brand new hire who is making $9.50 an hour. How is that fair? It's not fair! It's not fair! And if we're all equal, why even work harder? And take that next step on the ladder if there's no reward. The business owner might not be able to afford creating such a tiered ladder that's higher than $15 an hour. Or they may just not hire inexperienced workers at all and have to solely rely on the experienced workers whose productivity they know will guarantee a return on investment at $15 an hour. Learn it. Know it. Live it. Jane laments this prospect. The kid who's having their first job has no idea what it's like to be an employee. Um, You know, they have to learn, and somebody has to take the time to teach them that. And that's one thing that I pride myself on is... You know, someone did that for me when I was a kid. Someone did that for my daughter when when she was a kid. And I really want to be able to offer that value to the neighborhood, the community, and those kids that need to cut their teeth so that they're great employees when they go on and, you know, do their life's dream work. Another question NPR failed to ask, why $15 an hour? How much do you think you should be making for what you're doing? 15 minimum. What's the magic in this number? Maybe there isn't any. One of their guests proposed even higher. It's money, money, money by the money, money, money. Well, what do you think you should be making for the work that you're doing? Uh, minimum wage should be somewhere around like 21. $21 an hour. Yeah. But why stop at $21 an hour? Why not 25 Why not 100 Why not 1000 You're going to have to pay me... One million dollars! <laughs> why are folks being so stingy proposing $15? Sorry. Heck, why are there any limits? One hundred billion dollars! <laughs> Gentlemen, silence! Businesses create a certain value for customers, a certain value that customers pay them for, and can only support a certain labor expense to stay in business at all. I wouldn't mind paying more if people wouldn't mind uh, paying more for a scoop of ice cream. Come with me and you'll be in a world of pure imagination. In the world of our dreams, none of this would be an issue. The world wouldn't have limited resources. Its inhabitants would have unlimited resources at their disposal. Free ice cream. Anywhere one turned. Sounds like heaven, but back down here on Earth, in the world we live in, there's this little thing called reality. Which is still one heck of a reality, especially in this land we call the United States of America. So I went across the street and there's a big sign in this window that said, Help one, and I walked in and met a guy by the name of Ed Brown. I said, Mr. Brown, my name's Ed Renzi and I need a job. And I gotta make 85 bucks an hour a, a, day, a week 
because that's my living expense. He said, well, that won't be any problem. We pay 85 cents an hour, and you could work 100 hours a week. I said, hell, I've done that all my life. That's not a problem. <laughs> done and deal. literally, I went to work for McDonald's the first month I was there, February. I worked 100 hours a week. I didn't have a car. I walked home every day. Still managed that apartment building. I'll tell you, you talk about tired. Good news was I got a free lunch and a dinner, so the, the grocery <laughs> bill was taken care of. Then they put a sign up said managers wanted, and I signed up. I said I'd like to be a manager. How much do they pay? And they said they pay ninety five dollars a week. I said I got a ten dollar raise coming, <laughs> and I only have to work seventy hours. I signed up as a manager trainee. I started February the second, nineteen sixty six, and left there in nineteen ninety nine. Ed Renzi left as the CEO of McDonald's. All the way from 85 cents an hour for 100 hours a week. Only in America. If you want to view paradise, simply look around and view it. Anything you want to do it. Want to change the world? There's nothing to it. This has been the latest edition of our Only on NPR series. I'm Alex Cortez. And great work on that, Alex. So nowhere in that NPR piece, not once did they they talk about someone who rose up the ladder? Not once. I mean, our big, great research team here, just through our interviews, this is just people we've spoken to because we ask a very important question, and we love the segment, and it's called First Jobs Fridays. And from that springs all kinds of remarkable things. And we also do a non-leadership segment. And in that, we ask, of course, what do we ask? What's your first job and how much did you get paid? Anything else there? I mean, did they talk about, you know, 15, 20, 25? Did they talk about increased price of goods? I mean, was there anything about the social cost, Alex, in the NPR series uh, as it relates to minimum wage? No, not at all. Yeah, just wait till you hear the next one, Lee, about whiteness. That's whiteness? Our, that's our next one, yeah. Whiteness. I'm Lebanese yeah, the, and I'm Italian, the, so I, I can't wait. The privilege of whiteness. The privilege of whiteness. We're looking forward to that. And thanks for that work, Alex, Greg, on the production, only on NPR. And this is our American Stories, and we love bringing you the full stories. And Ed Renzi's, by the way, is a part of our On Leadership series. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. Listen to that. Also, listen to Brad Anderson's story. He started uh, at Best Buy, and he, as he as he called himself, he was a hippie who hated work, and he ended up becoming the CEO of Best Buy. Not even any commission, or not any minimum wage. He was purely commissioned, and yep. he didn't sell anything for months. <laughs> <laughs> he tried to quit, and they wouldn't let him. They wouldn't let him quit. It's a great story. And by the way, there are people who have wage issues, and there are wage issues in this country, and it's worthy of discussion. But you got to bring both sides. And that's what we do here on Our American Stories. And always, we do it through storytelling. This is Our American Stories. More after these messages.
This is Our American Stories, where we love great stories about music, sports, love, death, and business. But one of our favorite subjects is generosity and the generous things Americans do for each other and the world. Which brings us to our sweet charity series with our partners, the Philanthropy Roundtable, the nation's leader in fostering excellence and generosity, practicing philanthropic freedom, and assisting givers in achieving their goals. And the host of the series is none other than Carl Zinsmeister, their head of publications and a modern Renaissance man. And by the way, his book, The Almanac of American Philanthropy, is terrific. And here's a story from that great collection. Jack Horner has an unusual set of strengths and weaknesses. These strengths and weaknesses have made him an unlikely candidate for academic glory, but they gave him an eccentric, unconventional mind capable of drawing fresh inferences that other people missed. In the end, that made him a great scientist. And his creative, independent ways of working also made him a perfect partner for inventive donors. Jack Horner, plus a few dozen supportive philanthropists, have been a marriage made in heaven. Together, they've produced a pile of scientific breakthroughs, as big as, well, as big as a brontosaurus. A Westerner who grew up outdoors among rocks and machinery in the family gravel quarry, Jack Horner roared around as a boy, digging into nature and conducting science experiments and never becoming fully tamed. Thank goodness. He found his first dinosaur fossil at the age of eight, and this set him down an historic path. He started hunting dinosaurs as an amateur collector and showed remarkable instincts on where to look. But there were serious obstacles to his passion for paleontology. He was a terrible student. School was torture for him. He failed class after class and was only able to start at the University of Montana as a geology major because of its loose enrollment options. Horner then flunked out of college a grand total of seven times. It wasn't until two decades later that he discovered why book learning was so excruciating for him. He has dyslexia a condition few educators understood when he was in school. Basically, Jack Horner can't read. But hey, God is fair, and people with one weakness often end up with a compensating gift in other areas. Horner not only has strengths of visual and spatial intelligence that balance his learning disability, he believes that not being able to read has actually left him better at guessing where rare dinosaur remains might be found, and then analyzing what the fossils tell us about how the creatures lived. You see, rather than absorbing other people's written-down ideas and then regurgitating conventional wisdom, Horner is forced to look at the physical evidence in front of him and then to think for himself. In any case, there is no denying his genius for finding and then interpreting dinosaur remains. After his college calamities, he took work driving a truck and working at the family gravel quarry, but he kept hunting fossils in his spare time, uncovering many fascinating new skeletons. Despite his lack of any academic degree, Horner kept applying for paleontology jobs at every museum he could think of. Finally, he landed a low-level technician's position at Princeton's Natural History Museum. He hustled together a little donated money to support his fossil collecting in the summer, and soon he was making important finds. We collected a lot of cool stuff, and what was really cool was we found 10 new species of dinosaurs, and we found more dinosaur eggs, and we found the first dinosaur eggs with embryos in the world. I mean, it was really cool. From his own amateur discoveries, Horner began to draw fascinating conclusions about the lives of dinosaurs. 
new ideas that radically outstripped the work of conventional academics. Before long, he was offered his own program back in Bozeman, Montana at the State University. He rapidly gathered up the largest collection of dinosaur fossils anywhere, including stunning Tyrannosaurus and Triceratops remains, and turned his program into the most productive dinosaur research effort in the world. Jack Horner has sparked many radically new understandings. For instance, from evidence at a massive dinosaur hatchery that he uncovered, he concluded that some dinosaurs fed, nurtured, and cared for their young, unlike any reptile, but just like birds and mammals. He suggested that dinosaurs were partially warm-blooded and showed that many of them were brightly colored and sometimes feathered. His team found the first preserved soft tissue of dinosaurs, which confirmed their relation to birds. He changed many ideas about dinosaur growth and behavior and added and subtracted numerous species from the science books. When Steven Spielberg made his Jurassic Park movies, Horner was the model for Dr. Grant, the chief dinosaur scientist. And throughout all of this, donors and volunteers were Jack Horner's crucial partners. Indeed, philanthropists are a main reason he isn't still driving a truck for a living instead of transforming our understanding of the largest creatures ever to roam Earth. When he first set out to raise funds, this dinosaur discoverer didn't have a clue how to proceed, as he explains here in his own words. In 1978, I found some really cool dinosaurs. They were the, turned out to be the first baby dinosaurs found anywhere in the world. But I was a technician and I needed some money to, so I could go back out and collect some more of these dinosaurs. And so I didn't know anything about writing grants and I didn't know anybody that had any money. And so, and so I did the one thing that I, the only thing that I could think of doing, I wrote to the Rainier Brewing Company because I drank a lot of their beer. And, and I asked for $10,000 and they actually agreed to give it to me. Before long, though, Horner developed a roster of loyal donors. These have included people like Tom Siebel, the Kohler family, Nathan Mervold, George Lucas, Jerry Orstrom, Catherine Reynolds, the Murdoch Trust, and others. For years now, they have supported Jack Horner's summer digs in the field and helped pay the expenses of his graduate students. They built him a top-shelf analysis lab and a spectacular series of galleries at the Museum of the Rockies where his remarkable finds are now displayed to the public. This philanthropy hasn't been very expensive, maybe $15 million of donations over Horner's career, but it has been crucial in enabling the man's unconventional ways of operating. His private donors have been much more flexible and patient and open to what he calls wacky new theories than public science funders ever could be. Unlike agency bureaucrats, these donors recognize how important Horner's deep personal quirks have been to his scientific advances and made sure that red tape doesn't slow him down. As one of Horner's loyal supporters, technology executive Tom Siebel explains, Talk about learning differences. My God, he's got thinking differences. He just does not think like the rest of us. Jack Horner's donors recognize the hidden scientific genius in this man with nothing but a high school degree. And they supported his quirky quests through thick and thin, with very few strings attached, so that he could follow his powerful instincts. In this way, they demonstrated beautifully their own differences from more conventional funding sources. So we should all thank them for voluntarily putting their money on the dyslexic beer drinker, 
with his own peculiar way of discovering dinosaurs. And thanks, as always, to Carl Zinsmeister, and again, the Almanac of American Philanthropy. He authored it. Pick it up. Go to Philanthropy Roundtable's website. Um, It's there, and it's filled with great stories, everything from the billionaire's story straight through to the, the lady who just, well, cleaned homes and ended up giving away hundreds of thousands of dollars of scholarships. It's generosity that runs the range from ordinary Americans straight up to the nation's wealthiest families. And again, Sweet Charity is the series, and the Philanthropy Roundtable is the sponsor of this really great weekly segment that we do. And again, they're the nation's leader in fostering excellence in generosity and protecting philanthropic freedom. Go to Philanthropy Roundtable's website to learn more about what they do. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And you can go to ouramericannetwork.org to learn more about what we do, see and visit our sponsors, and download particularly, well, are this days in history. I think you can go up there now. I think we've got about 150 up there. Everything from Frank Sinatra's day of birth right through the one I just listened to recently, Andrew Carnegie, which I hadn't heard in a long time. It's terrific. They're all up there. Safe travels. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our Faith in Action segment, where we tell stories about what people of faith do in the public square. But stories not told off enough in the public square. This week, it's a story we read in Philanthropy Roundtable's Philanthropy Magazine, a story that inspired us so much, we asked our field correspondent, Stan Dye, to chase it down. Alan Barnhart is the CEO of Barnhart Crane and Rigging, a premier heavy lift and transport company based in Memphis, Tennessee, worth some $250 million. With more than 30 branches and 1,000 expert employees, if you want to move something big, say 19 million pounds of hardware at a nuclear power plant, Barnhart can do the job. But you may be surprised by some things that the Barnhart children have not been able to do, like take trips to Disney World, or buy toys that their family can presumably afford. As Alan says, It has been a great benefit, I think frankly to my children, to not have to grow up as rich kids, and to learn the, um, learn the word no, and learn that they don't always get what they want. That was the theology from the Rolling Stones that I taught them. You don't always get what you want. You know that little song? <laughs> you can't always get what you want. You can't always get what you want. 
And that's not the only surprise. We went to advisors and said, we'd like to give our business away. And they thought that that was uh, improved. <laughs> they thought that was not something that we should do. Whoa, wait a minute. What madness is this? That almost sounds like the setup for a TV show where we say stranger and stranger things to people in suits and see how long they'll go along with it. But actually, Alan's seemingly odd request to give away his whole business is as sincere as it gets. This journey began some decades ago when Alan was in college. My roommate and I, we'd always challenge each other and we started talking about world hunger and specifically about the famines that were going on in Ethiopia at that time. And uh, we started wrestling with it and, and um, how, how can this be, what can we do? And, and started asking ourselves a question of how can we live like we're living, the lifestyle that we have, when brothers and sisters in Christ are starving to death? And we wrestled with that for a few days and decided that we needed to do something. And uh, we had planned to go skiing out in Colorado a few months later. And we decided to take the 350 bucks that we were gonna spend to go skiing and send it to World Relief or World Vision, I think it was, to help the situation in Ethiopia. And we instead went to the local lake for spring break. It was probably the only sacrificial gift I've ever made in my life. And I know that my 350 bucks didn't change much about Ethiopia, but it changed me. And it was a, a turning point in my life. After graduation, Alan joined the family business and eventually took the reins along with his brother, Eric a responsibility he took seriously, and in ways that you might not expect. And so I decided that I would study through the Bible and read every verse I could read about, about business and about money and wealth, because that's the field that I was going into. And part of the whole purpose of business is to make money. So what does the Bible say about money? And I went through the whole Bible over about a two-year period, and I'm engineer, so I'm kind of cataloging verses and, and trying to figure out what Scripture is saying and I, and I came away from that study with two primary takeaways. And the first one is that everything that I have, and everything that I am, has come from God and belongs to God. And I am a steward of it. And my job is, is to figure out what God wants me to do with the things that he's given me. None of it belongs to me. I have no rights. I'm a steward. The second one may surprise you a bit. The second one was... I came away with a fear of wealth, a fear of, of business success. Um, if you start thinking about the scriptures, how many scriptures really would point to that fear? There were many of them. You know, Jesus said, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why did he say that? He said, he said don't store up for yourself treasures on earth. This was a fear so great that Alan, Eric, and their wives made plans to protect their families. And so we made a decision on the front end before we had any money and before we, when business was just starting. And the, and the decision was this. We're going to set for ourselves a financial finish line, a salary, a middle-class salary that we're going to make. And if God chooses to bless this business beyond what it takes to generate that salary, we're not going to see it as a call to increase our lifestyle. But instead, we're going to see it as an opportunity to take that, that money and use it to fund ministry. And so that was the commitment that we made on the front end. The second thing that we did is we told other people about that commitment. We made the commitment before the Lord, but we also told others, including people within our company. 
And that locked in our decision. It gave us some real accountability. Think about that for a moment. Many folks reflect on wealth, charity, and legacy towards the end of their careers. Here we have a family that set a financial finish line for themselves as they barely left the starting line before their business grew very much at all. But grow it did. So now we, we were ready to start our business. We had set these guidelines in place or these safeguards in place and we started our company. Um, it was very small, again, just uh, 10 guys in Memphis and we didn't know if we would even survive the first year because it was a mom and pop business and mom and pop were leaving. And, uh, and we, but the first year we actually made some money and uh, we were so excited. We were able to, uh, we had $50,000 extra money that we were able to give away. And we got to, we, one of the other things we said on the front end is we, if we do have any money to, to invest, we're going to do it as a group. And so it started out, there were six of us that got together and prayed and said, God, what do you want us to do with this money that you have generated? And we took it and we gave it away. And the next year the company grew some more. And I think we had $150,000. And, and each year the company just continued to grow. And it grew about 25% a year for the next 23 years. For you math guys, that means it was 100 times bigger than it had been. It went from a very small company in Memphis to a company that works all over the U.S. and has about 1,000 employees. And our ability to give greatly ramped up. I mean, we got to the place in the early 2000s where we were, we had a, we had a million dollars a year to invest in the kingdom. And, and we had a much bigger group now trying to help us figure out how to do that and praying and saying, God, what do you want us to do? And, uh, in 2004, one of our guys said, we ought to set a goal. He's a salesman, you know how salesmen are. We ought to set a goal to, give, to, to be able to invest a million dollars a month into the kingdom. And we thought, yeah, yeah okay, whatever. And, uh, but the next year, our industry just started booming. 2005 to 2008 were great years in our industry. And, and we went from a $50 million company to a $250 million company during that four-year period. And, uh, and throughout that period and ever since, we've been able to invest over, over a million dollars a month into the kingdom. And we're just amazed at what God is doing. We had no vision for this, no thought that this would ever happen. God has just chosen to pour out um, uh, a huge amount of business success on our company. The Barnhards immediately donated half of their profits to charity and reinvested the other half to grow the business. The $50,000 they gave to charity in that first year was more than Alan's entire salary. This voluntary income cap kept the Barnhards from ever earning more than their peers at Sunday school. But Alan will be the first to say that this is not some poverty lifestyle. We have six children. The poverty level for a family of eight is $35,000. And uh, that's about $4,400 per person, which would put you actually in the top 15% of people in the world. If you lived at the poverty level, that would put you in the top 15% of the world. And, uh, and we live at about three and a half times that level. So, so our salary is not a, a sacrificial salary. We make about $125,000 a year and have everything that we need. Every bit as amazing as their engineering prowess or capitalist success story is their guiding moral vision, keeping them accountable from day one. A vision that's now a special sort of inheritance for their children. The Barnhart kids maybe didn't get new cars when they turned 16, but they certainly got something. Our children have had the benefit of not having to grow up as rich kids, which is a difficult thing for kids to do. They've also had the benefit of of seeing 
um, the world. We've, we've traveled with them a lot. And we've also had benefit of, of people from in all types of ministries sitting at the dinner table talking about what they do. And so our kids' perspective has been broadened. And uh, we believe in leaving our kids a rich inheritance. And we are trying to do that. We think that has very little to do with money. In fact, we think it would be almost, it's almost counterproductive often, most often, to leave them money. But uh, we leave, we'd want to leave them a very rich inheritance. Reporting for Our American Stories, I'm Stan Dutt. That's great work by Stan. And there's one other point I wanted to add here that we didn't cover in the story. The Barnharts, they keep operational control of this business, but they've given ownership of the business to the National Christian Foundation. And they did it to protect their hearts. And in the end, to keep that business going. And when profits are pushed out, they go to the kingdom. And that's the best of both worlds, my friends. The Christian heart at work and the entrepreneurial mind at work. And you'll hear this story only here on Our American Stories and stories like it. More after these messages. 